Well, good morning. Speak what is true. That's the heart of every message, right? Today is a special day at Wayside, as you well know. Today is our church picnic, so I'm excited about that. I'll be out there with my family. I hope you come out and join us as well. And because of that, I'm going to try to be a few minutes shorter with my message today because I can get a little bit long-winded. So I'm going to try to get us out of here on time, maybe even a couple minutes early. So I did lots of surgery. I'm down to 3,761 words. But what I'm saying right now is not part of that. So I need to, <laughs> need to go ahead and get started. The great American evangelist John Wesley was out preaching one Sunday. And he noticed that a woman in the crowd was having a really hard time focusing. As a matter of fact, she just looked extremely befuddled. And what the, the problem was, was that Wesley was preaching with, in a brand new bow tie that had streamers hanging down from both sides, and it was driving this woman crazy. So much so, she just couldn't even listen to the sermon. So after the sermon, she goes up to Wesley, and she says, Pardon me, Mr. Wesley, would you suffer a little bit of criticism? Wesley's like, okay. She goes, well, your bow tie is too long, and it is a great offense to me. Wesley's like, okay. So he hands her a pair of scissors, and he says, well, have at it. She comes up. She cuts his bow tie. She's like, now, much better. Wesley asks for the scissors back, and he says, ma'am, would you suffer a little bit of criticism? She says, yeah, what's up? He said, well, your tongue is a great offense to me. It's a little bit too long. So can you stick it out while I cut some of it off? She was not impressed. And this was probably not one of Wesley's finest moments, right? But it does speak to the tongue. The tongue, all of three inches long, its average weight of about 60 to 70 grams. And while the frenulum is the tissue that connects the tongue physically to the floor of the mouth, Jesus tells us that the tongue's spiritual connection goes from the mouth to the heart. In Luke 6.45, Jesus says, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For the mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. The tongue, which James is going to use this morning to indicate speech, is oftentimes the thermometer that indicates our spiritual temperature. Or as many have said, the tongue is a tattletale and it tells on the heart. The tongue is a tattletale, and it tells on the heart. Last week, Roger walked us through a really difficult passage in James 2 about faith and works. And if you recall, in that passage, one of the pictures that James paints is found in verses 15 and 16, where this person, this believer, comes upon another believer who's in great physical need. They're in great physical need. And James, this, in, this, in, the, in James' picture, this guy looks at the believer and he tells them, Hey, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And then he walks off without doing anything to meet that brother or sister's physical need. 
And, and James looks at that and he says that person's faith is dead because their faith has been divorced from works. And so we really focus on that, this idea of faith and works going together. But one of the negative consequences of that at times, one of the negative repercussions that I have experienced from talking to some Christians is because faith without works is dead, they therefore assume that what you say doesn't matter. They think that all that matters is what you do. And friends, not only is that ridiculous, that is completely unbiblical. It's completely unbiblical because what we say as Christians matters. What we say as Christians matters. As a matter of fact, it matters greatly. And just because words can be hollow does not mean they are irrelevant. And just because words can return empty does not mean that they are meaningless. James says that faith without works is dead. And friends, do not forget that our words are part of our works. Our words are part of our works. It's not a coincidence that right after chapter 2, where he hammers this faith and works message, is chapter 3, which goes directly into taming the tongue. Think about how many wars have started Think about how many relationships and marriages have been destroyed. Think about how many churches have split. Not over any serious doctrinal difference, but over the fact that Christians were unable to tame their tongue. And as we enter into the text this morning, I want to remind each one of us here of the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 36. When Jesus said, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Every word. We will be accountable to God for what we say. Just the thought of that, I don't know about you, but just the thought of that causes me to maybe pause And reconsider the weight of my words. Reconsider the weight of my words. And with that lighthearted and feel-good opening out of the way, (laughs) please turn with me to James chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12. This morning's passage breaks down into three sections. Okay, so verses 1 through 5, James is going to lock in and tell us about the power of the tongue. Verses 6 through 8, James is going to look at the perversity of the tongue. And then verses 9 through 12, James is going to look at the pollution of the tongue. So we have the power of the tongue, we have the perversion of the tongue, and we have the pollution of the tongue. What a perfect message to get us ready for the church picnic, right? It's going to be the quietest picnic we've ever had. People are going to be walking around. Hey, man. Hey, hey, hey. Afraid to talk. I'm just kidding. It's going to be fantastic. Don't let that keep you from going. So starting in verse 1, James writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I'm going to be honest with you. When I was praying about being a pastor a few years ago, somehow I missed James 3.1. 
I'll see First Peter 5 talked about the crown to give those who shepherd the flock. I accidentally skipped over this one. Because the role of the teacher was very prominent in the life of the early church. Remember, this is the first letter of the New Testament. This is 10 to 15 years after the death, resurrection of Christ and the birth of the church at Pentecost. And the teacher was very important in the early church. It was very similar to the rabbi in Jewish culture. And that was a position that had much, much respect, much esteem. It was highly valued. And it was, a, it was a desirable position. And because of that, many were clamoring for the role of teacher, but they were doing it for all the wrong reasons. They had the wrong motivation for wanting to teach. They were, they were sucked in by the power and the allure of being the person teaching. Now, unfortunately, this is still an issue in, in our day, right? This is still an issue in our day. Because for better or worse, our culture is such a cult of personality that we tend to put such a premium and importance on the person behind the pulpit. Probably in an unhealthy way to the detriment of that person and to the detriment of the church. Now, as an aside, and I can say this because Roger's not here. He's out of town. I am really thankful that we have a senior pastor here who's not interested in being famous. He's really not. I've gotten, I get to work with him every day. Been here two and a half years. He's not interested in being famous. He's not interested in seeing his face on a billboard. He's not interested in having uh, a brand unto himself. But he's interested in shepherding the flock here at Wayside and loving us well. And I, for one, am thankful for that. And this warning by James... It's, he's a, this, this warning by James in verse 1, though, is not just for senior pastors. Uh-oh. <laughs> this is for all teachers who teach God's Word. And Wayside is a church where there's a lot of teaching. Think about all the teaching that goes on in the ABFs, in children's ministry, in student ministries, in the small groups that meet at home during the week. We have many teachers in our midst. And these words from James come to us as a warning, us who seek to teach. This is a warning, and it warns us of three things. One, it reminds us and warns us of the weight and responsibility of teaching God's Word. That's a huge thing. The second thing it does is it warns us to check our motivations for wanting to teach. Why do we want to teach God's Word? And then lastly, it reminds us the importance of living a life that is congruent with what it is that we teach. That I want to live a life that matches what it is that I preach. And though James does not want to discourage those who are truly called to teach, that's not his intent. He does want us to recognize, now hear me, the potential for condemnation which is far greater for those who use their tongue to teach the Word of God in public ministry. It's a big deal. And after James' initial warning in verse 1 to prospective teachers, he now goes into a general warning in verse 2 for everyone about the tongue, a warning that pertains to everyone. In verse 2 he writes, For we all stumble in many ways, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? 
Shades of Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what James is saying here, get this, is for we all stumble in many ways. He's not just saying that we all sin. He's saying that we all sin in a variety of ways. And we know, we know that to be true about ourselves as well. And while speech is not the only place where we struggle with sin, it is quite possibly the most common place we struggle with sin. It's not the only place, but it's quite possibly the most common place. Because no one is immune to the struggles of sin in regards to the tongue. No one. My uh, seminary professor at Dallas Seminary who taught on the book of James, Dr. Stanley Toussaint, he's kind of a legend there. And, and when he was teaching James and he was opening up James, he looks out in the class and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, the book of James is one of the most difficult books in the entire Bible to study and to preach. It's one of the most difficult. He said, but it's not because it's so complicated, but because it's so difficult to live out. It's so difficult to live out. James really pushes us. It is a convicting book. What we're looking at this morning is a convicting passage to study. It's a convicting message to hear. And I promise you, it's a convicting message to preach. I promise you. And James writes that those who are able to refrain from stumbling in speech are considered perfect. This is the Greek word teleos that you've heard many times already in our study of the book of James. This is a common theme in this book as it's talking about something reaching its maturity. It's maturing. It's reaching its fullness. And James here is emphasizing spiritual maturity. He's emphasizing spiritual maturity and he's saying one of the places that you can check for maturity, one of the most important places you can check for maturity is in the way that you speak. It's in how you speak. And not just rehearse speech like what I'm giving right now. I have a manuscript. I've typed out what I'm going to say. I've thought about it all week. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about idle speech. When you're sitting at home with your family, when you're with your friends, when you're at work, when you're watching your beloved university's football team get beat by 59 on national television. Don't think James 3 wasn't rattling around in my brain yesterday afternoon. James, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that the mature Christian controls their tongue. Not just in church, but all the time. All the time. I told you this is a convicting passage. Starting in verse 3, James proceeds to show how the tongue, though small, exerts an inordinate amount of power in our lives and in the lives of those around us. To do this, he uses three analogies found in verses 3 through 5. He writes, Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. 
So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. In each example James uses in these three verses, he speaks of something large being controlled by something much, much smaller. He talks about a horse. Think about that. A thousand pound horse that's controlled by a little bit, a little bridle. He talks about a ship. I think of the Carnival Cruise Line ship I went on on my honeymoon. A a, a mass of humanity on the water. A moving city controlled by small rudders. Speaks of a fire, and I think of the news. You turn on the news, and the California wildfires burning up, or Colorado, wherever they are, and how oftentimes those fires start from one little spark, one little match. And his point is that, the, the, is that though the tongue is only three inches long and all of 60 grams in weight, it is incredibly powerful and has the ability to exert so much power that it would control our entire life. That's how powerful it is. And I want you to think about that for a second. Think about the power of the tongue. Think about the power of words. Think about the way words have impacted your life. Words said to you by a parent, a spouse, a friend, a coworker, a boss, a coach. Think about how much those words have shaped how you view yourself, how you view God, and how you view life in general. As you all well know, I played sports growing up. And one of the things I wanted more than anything was to earn the approval and the praise of my coaches. I mean, I hung on every word they said. And I had one coach in high school who was pretty tough. He was a good football coach, but he, was, he coached me hard. He coached me really hard. And one game we were playing, and, and late in the game, it was a close game, and I got hurt. I come to the sidelines. The medical staff won't let me back in the game. My backup goes in. He made a mistake. They scored a touchdown. They won the game. So we go home back to the field house, go back to school, and this coach says, hey, Loudermilk, can I see you for a second? So I'm like, yeah, okay. So I go over there, and I figure he's going to ask me, hey, you okay? Tough loss, yada, yada, yada. And he looks at me, kind of pulls me aside, And he starts listing the names of guys who had played that position before me. All the guys I'd looked up to, older guys that I wanted to be like. And he starts listing their names one by one. And he looks at me and he says, those guys would have gone back in and played. He he said, you chose not to. Thus insinuating that I was a coward. And insinuating that I didn't care about the team. And I was crushed. I was crushed by that. I literally cried all night. Now, in retrospect, I put way too much stock into what my coaches thought of me. I put way too much stock into what people thought of me. But we tend to do that when we're teenagers. We tend to do that when we're adults. We tend to do that when we're humans. 
But those words that evening wounded me. And as crazy as it sounds, it took me years to get over that conversation. Years for that conversation to stop being on loop in my brain. You're a coward. I know that coach didn't mean to hurt me. He's a good coach. He's a good guy. Tough loss. He didn't have all the information. Wanted to challenge me. He didn't mean to shatter me that night. But words can have that type of impact. They can have that type of impact. And you guys know that, don't you? Your sensitive spot may be different than mine. But you know what it's like to be wounded by things said to you or about you. Maybe you were younger and you heard somebody overheard, you overheard someone say or even to your face, hey, you're ugly. You're ugly. And the rest of your life, you've looked in the mirror and you've asked yourself, am I really worth loving? I'm ugly. Or someone maybe told you at some point, you're not worth it. You're just not worth the effort to love. And so you've spent the rest of your life looking in the mirror and saying, I'm not worth it. I'm not worth being loved. No one could ever really love me. Maybe one time in your life someone said, you know what? Maybe it was your dad. They said, you know what? You're a failure. You're a flat-out failure. And you've spent the rest of your life trying to either prove to your dad or whoever it was that you're not a failure or you've just been living with the lie that you are one. We have experienced enough to know that the adage, sticks and stones can break my bones but words will never hurt me, is the stupidest saying we've probably ever repeated. Amen? Because words can absolutely hurt. Words can destroy. And yet, for all the damage that words can do, we know the life they can bring as well, right? We know the life that they can bring. We know the encouragement that they can bring. When we're down in the dumps and someone comes along and says, puts their arm on our shoulder and says, I got you. I'm going to walk through this with you. When you do something and you get that compliment that you tattoo to your heart and your brain and it puts pep in your step, that compliment says, hey, great job. Well done. You're a great dad. You're a great husband. You're a great mom. You're a great worker that we just latch on to. Those times where we need the encouragement, the exhortation to persevere when we want to quit. And someone comes along and says, let me tell you something. You can do this. Don't give up. Hang in there. Those I love yous that give you such security and joy. We know the death and destruction that words can bring, but we also know the life they can bring. And I think the problem is, is that we oftentimes forget the power of our words. We forget the power of our words. And this passage is a call for each one of us, no matter how young, no matter how old, to examine how it is we speak to those around us. How it is it that you speak to your spouse, to your child, to your coworker, to your friends, to your subordinates. What seeds are we sowing in the lives of those around us by what it is that we say? And let me be clear. I'm not saying that we don't tell people hard things. 
I'm not saying that we should lie to people just to make them feel good. That's destructive. That's not what I'm saying. There's definitely a time to have those crucial conversations. There's definitely times to call people out and say, hey, that's not good. That's commanded in Scripture. There are definitely times to discipline. There are definitely times to challenge. No question about it. I'm not saying don't do that. What I am saying and what James is saying is that we need to remember the power of our words as well as the responsibility that we have to use them for good and not for evil. Unfortunately, as James tells us in verse 6, this is not an easy task. Because not only is the tongue incredibly powerful, but it's also perverse. James writes, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. It's like, tell us how you really feel, James, right? James does not paint a positive portrait of the tongue. As a matter of fact, many scholars look at chapter 3, verse 6 in the book of James, and they say this is the strongest statement in the entire Bible on the danger of the mouth. This is number one. James says the tongue is a fire, continuing the forest fire imagery of verse 5. He says that the tongue defiles the entire body, echoing the words of his half-brother Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, when Jesus said, It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. James tells us that the tongue sets on fire the course of our life, our entire wheel of life. And James is articulating here that the tongue can destroy not only our our entire life, but everything and everyone we come into contact with as well. Lastly, James talks about how the tongue is set on fire by hell. By hell. And he uses the present tense of the verb. So in other words, our tongue is continually being lit by hell. Continually being lit by hell. So we know, according to verse 6, the tongue is a fire lit by the embers of hell and it has the potential to destroy not only us, but everything and everyone in our path. And that is scary. That's scary. That is sobering. And that's exactly James's point. That's exactly his point. That's why he is pleading with the readers then and he's pleading with us now to tame your tongue. Tame your tongue. The problem with taming one's tongue, as you well know, is that it's beyond difficult. It's beyond difficult. Look at verses 7 and 8. James writes, For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. James points out the ability for mankind, think about this, to tame and domesticate a plethora of animals. Have you ever been to SeaWorld? You ever seen the size of an orca whale? 
Can you believe the variety, the intensity, and the power of the animals that humankind, mankind has tamed, and yet no one can tame the tongue. No one can truly domesticate one's speech. And as if talking about the power and the perversity of the tongue wasn't enough, James says, hey, I need to give you one more. I'm going to tell you about the pollution of the tongue. Look at verses 9 and 10. James writes, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. How convicting is that? How many of us are guilty, myself included? I'll stand at the front of the line. Standing here with the body of Christ, singing praise songs to God, hands lifted high. Then we exit the doors, we get into our car, and we lob verbal grenades at one another who are made in the image of God. James looks at that and he says, My brethren, brothers, sisters, that it, things ought not to be this way. To illustrate the contradictory nature of blessing and cursing coming from the same source, the same mouth, James references examples from the natural world found in verses 11 and 12. Things that his readers would have been familiar with. He writes, Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? And the obvious answer is no. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? No. Or a vine produce figs? No. Nor can salt water produce fresh. And in each instance, James highlights the inconsistency of something producing that which it shouldn't. Something producing that which is not indicative of where it came from, the source. And James' point is clear. He's saying if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of the risen Lord, then your tongue needs to reflect that. Your tongue needs to reflect that, both in what you say and in how you say it. Now this is a heavy passage to go through, right? And the obvious question that we're faced with right now in the closing few minutes, is how do we do this, Michael? How do we tame the tongue? Because from what I hear from you, it seems pretty hopeless. Because you've spent the first 25, 30 minutes of this message telling me that we all have a tongue, it's all powerful, it's all perverse, and it's totally polluted. So, good luck. Well, there's two things I want to say to that. Number one, we will never totally conquer our sin and conquer this sin in particular, this side of glory. We're never going to. Scripture is clear on that. But please remember that the process of spiritual maturity, this process of reaching its fullness, this process that James is talking about, is one that is more about direction, not perfection. It's less about perfection and it's more about direction. 
Because we will not reach sinless perfection till we go be present with the Lord in our glorified state. But we do have the ability, as well, to be honest with you, the mandate to grow spiritually in that direction as we are conformed to the image of Christ. One of my favorite pastors, Tommy Nelson, who preaches up in Denton Bible, he said something one time that really stuck with me. And he said, brothers and sisters, in his nice Texas country accent, he said, the Christian life in many ways is a healthy struggle. A healthy struggle. We will not be free from the presence of sin until we're glorified, but we can have victory in the here and now. We can have a healthy struggle as we wrestle with these things. The second thing we need to understand is that growth in this area or any spiritual area is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's our only shot. That's our only chance is the Holy Spirit at work in us. Scripture tells us that those who have been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, we've been baptized into the church, now are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The living God inside of us. We have been sealed for the day of redemption. The living God taking up residence in each one of his children. That's us. And Scripture tells us that we have the ability, ability because of the Holy Spirit, to walk by the Spirit and put to death the flesh. We have the ability to walk by the Spirit and put to death the things of the flesh. But this is only possible when we walk by the Spirit. Now, earlier in the passage in verse 8, I want to point something out that's kind of interesting. It says, no one can tame the tongue. And the, what that literally says in the Greek is no one of humans can tame the tongue. No one of humans can tame the tongue. And I agree. No human can tame the tongue. But you know what the implication is? God can. You, you can't tame the tongue. God, he can tame the tongue. And God did tame the tongue in the God-man, Jesus Christ. The one who is fully God and fully man. The one who left his throne in heaven and took on flesh, becoming like us always except sin, as the book of Hebrews tells us. And Scripture tells us that while no human is sinless, for we all stumble in many ways, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is totally sinless. He was perfect without sin. We humans, we tend to speak words that bring death. But the God-man, Jesus Christ, spoke words of life. And as a matter of fact, the Apostle John tells us that he is life, and his life is the light of men. We humans tend to speak words lit by the smoldering embers of hell. But the God-man, Jesus Christ, he came to set us free from the powers and the presence of hell. The human tongue tends to bring forth a mixture of polluted and fresh water. But the God-man, Jesus Christ, spoke of a living water to the woman at the well that will never leave you thirsty again. And the beauty of the Gospels... The beauty of the gospel is that God became what he was not so that we could become what we are not. God became what he was not so we could become what we are not. The one who was holy took on sin. And we who are sinners take on his righteousness as we come to him by faith. 
That's the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And brothers and sisters, if you've tuned me out, listen right now. Right now. Because the last thing I want is for you to leave this morning, walking out the door, and I know some of us are wired this way, and you're going, okay, if I can cuss less, if I can minimize my gossip, if I can reduce my yelling, then I will finally be acceptable to God. I will finally have earned his death, and he will finally be able to truly love me. And the problem with that, guys, is he already loves you. And he's already died for you. That's Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And you cannot earn your salvation because the salvation that God offers is a gift that comes by grace. By grace. When we come to him in faith. A grace that is based on the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who hung on the cross as the sin bearer. The one who John the Baptist saw and said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who promises that if we come to him in faith, we will be redeemed from the fires of hell and the powers of darkness and transferred to his kingdom of light where we are transformed into the image of Christ. It is true that we have a poisonous tongue. It is true. But it is also true that we have a perfect Savior. We have a poisonous tongue, but the message of the gospel is we have a perfect Savior who is mighty to save and who is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we confess that we sin in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. And and the way we speak is at the top of that list. We so often say things did you not bring glory to you? We, we bless you and then curse others. And as James said, my, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And yet, God, we praise you for the fact that in spite of our condition, in spite of the fact that all we earn is death, you willingly made a choice to enter in to humanity when you took on flesh, becoming one of us, for doing what we could not do living a perfect life, willingly laying down your life, as the scriptures say, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down on my own accord. And you willingly went to the cross where you took on our sin. You rose from the dead on the third day, not in a spiritual sense, not in a uh, remembrance sense, but in a physical reality sense. That you conquered death, you proved that what you said was true, and to this day, your word rings true that if we place our trust in you, we will receive eternal life. And the Holy Spirit, which allows us to not be chained to sin and slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. As we put to death the flesh, we walk by the Spirit, and we experience victory in this life and perfection in the life to come. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.